0: continuing this morning a series that we began last week called Unstoppable, and the subtitle of that is what a biblical church is and does. And for some of you think, well, you know, that sort of seems real organizational and sort of technical and all of that, but I think that we'll find as we look at the scripture that, and I'm thankful for this, there is not the technical jargon that comes with a lot of church growth strategies and how to do things and all of that, there are principles that we put in, and hopefully as we apply those, that we become the kind of church and kind of people that God wants us to be. And so last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus invites us to be a part of what he describes as an unstoppable movement, his church. He said, I'll build my church and not even the gates of hell, not even the forces of hell primarily death. Nothing can stop what I'm going to establish. And so we learned that that he uses, it's his church, but he uses people to build it. And if we're going to be a part of that unstoppable movement, and we're really not just going to exist and survive as individuals and as a church, but we're going to be unstoppable, we have to believe in and imitate the founder of this unstoppable movement, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so we looked last week at Several different things that Jesus was about, what his life was characterized by. And those things such as submission to God. In every area of his life, he was submitted to God. He did exactly what God told him to do. In fact, Jesus, in the book of John, would say, I don't do anything unless I see my Father doing it. I am simply a reflection, an extension of my Heavenly Father. I only operate because he has given me the the will and so on to operate. And so he he submitted to him. And not only that, but he served there's a powerful verse in Mark chapter ten where Jesus Himself says, "I didn't come to be served, but to serve." And so Jesus, the Lord of all creation, came to earth not only humbled Himself to become one of us, but then served us. And so we imitate Him in that way, and only that. But He sacrificed. The end of that verse says that Jesus came to give His life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin. In exchange for us, He died, and so He sacrificed. And I'm reminded of that this morning. I week, we were short on some parking spaces. In fact, we had one about midway through the sermon. I walked out of the door, and some of you were thankful for that and thought the service was over, but I came back in, unfortunately, for you. But while I was out there, I looked, and there was only one parking place. I'm thankful today that some of you made the sacrifice, and you're physically able and don't have young children. It would be dangerous. You, you parked across the street. And so I know that uh, we had, uh, obviously, some of our college students back. When I was in college, everybody drove separate cars. They might have to go in the same place, and everybody drives separately. I all like to drive. And so maybe today... We had enough parking for everybody and some of a sacrifice. We see that in Jesus. Knowing that, but Jesus said at the end of the passage where he's interacting with Zacchaeus, he said, I've come to seek and to save what's lost. And so we look at following his example means that we don't just simply wait for people who need Jesus to come into our path, that we operate that way, but, but we also go out and we seek. We do our best to invest our lives in those who need Jesus. And we leave the saving, of course, up to him, but we invest and seek out those people. And then we saw where those people who came to him and began to follow him, he shepherded them. He got his hands dirty, so to speak, in their lives. And he helped them through their problems and issues, and he moved forward with them, and they wandered off sometimes, and he helped to bring them back, and they did things that were wrong, and he helped to correct them and so on. And and so we're looking at how we can be part of this unstoppable force, because if we're honest with ourselves... And honest as a church, none of us really want to just exist. Some of us operate that way. Some of us sort of go day to day and we're just content. But really, at our core, I would would guarantee you that if we were to sit and talk, every one of us in this room would say, you know, as a person, I don't want to just exist. I really want to do something with my life. I I may be young, I may be old, I may be in between, but however much time I've got left, I really want it to count for something. I don't even know what that means, but I want it to count. And as a church, if we were to really be honest, we would say, you know, based on what the Scripture says and what we know we are to be doing, we don't want to just exist. We don't want to just survive and sort of run out the string on whatever God asks for. It. We really want to do something. We want to be unstoppable. We want to be impactful. We want God to use us. And so we're looking at how that can happen. And, and I want to put before you today that it, that doesn't begin with implementing some new strategy or program. A lot of times you'll read something, hear something, and, and I know just in, in the circles that I happen to operate within, which is largely church work kind of people, pastors and stuff like that, they they will, will throw at you a new strategy. Well, if you just try this, if you just implement this program, well, then things are going to really take off. You'll see God do some amazing things, but I'm convinced it doesn't begin with that. I'm convinced that it doesn't begin with writing some mission statement and hanging it on the wall, though that may be part of it. It doesn't begin with that. It also, I don't believe, begins with developing some new vision for God's church. God's already given the vision. He's already laid it out in the scripture, and we see it over and over. And he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, and then go reach lost people. I don't know what other vision we can come up with that's any better than that, and I'm not arrogant enough to think that I can try. And so we look, and we don't say, well, we need to discover or or to figure out what the new vision is. And nobody's ever thought of it. In fact, I think what we need to do is rediscover what God's original vision is and begin to implement that as best we can in our setting. And so as we do that, I think we'll see God begin to work. And so I want to take us, as we've looked at last week, to the scripture again. And I think today we'll discover an important factor, a very vital factor that kept the, the members of the early church dependent upon Jesus and effective in their ministry toward others. And so as we look at this series, understand that I'm not trying to be extremely technical And say, well, if we'll just operate in this particular ministry this way, then, wow, watch out. Because what I think is that we have to lay the foundation. And we have to get our hearts ready. And we have to make ourselves open and available to whatever God wants to do in our lives individually and collectively. And then whatever is implemented will work. Then whatever is implemented, God might actually be a part of. As opposed to doing it the other way and we get upside down and we... Don't see really God working; it's just us. And so, I want to partner with Him by laying in His foundation first. And so, as we begin, I want to have you repeat something after me. All right. So, just kind of follow along here for just a second. Are you ready to okay, repeat this after me? I. Let's try it again. I am not perfect. For somebody, that's the first time you have ever said that. Now, I want you to realize you didn't feel an earthquake. God was not shocked. He did not fall off his throne in heaven because you admitted that. Certainly the people next to you are saying, well, it's about time you admitted that. (laughs) Nothing, the paint didn't fall off the walls. There's nothing earth shattering because the truth is that I'm not perfect. You are not perfect. Why would we admit something like that? You know, we make light of it, but think about it. You ever been to a place, particularly a church, where you walk in and you feel like, I just don't belong? Wow, these people seem to have it all together. Well, if they really got to know me, I probably would have to sit outside the circle. I'd lose a star or two. If they really knew about me and what I do and what I've done and the way I act and all that stuff. You ever been to a place like that where you just feel like, oh my goodness. And sometimes we have a wrong impression of a place, no doubt. We walk in and we just sort of, we we kind of have the the wrong impression. We think, well, those people are perfect. They're really not, and we get to know them. We understand that. But but other times there are lots of churches around and lots of people around who pretend that they are perfect. And as a result, if you don't play the game, you wind up on the outside. And there are people who are going to walk through our doors who are simply needing to find some truth, needing to find some way to lay down the imperfections in their life and take on a new identity. And if we are a place, if we are a people, if this is a body that will always say, well, we're perfect and we operate exactly the right way all the time, that we're going to constantly shun and push those people out people you encounter on a regular basis. Think about the people that you're around, be it in line at the store or at work or at school or wherever it is that you may go, that you interact with people on a regular basis, weekly, monthly, whatever it may be. Those people don't need to see somebody who's pretending to be perfect. They need to see somebody who realizes, I am completely imperfect. And yes, at my core, I'm sinful, but Jesus has forgiven me and sets me back up. Even today when I fall, that's what they need to see. Because the way to impact people isn't by pretending to be perfect, but by being a fellow traveler. And just moment by moment, living in the grace and mercy of Jesus. And just saying, hey, you know what? You're not perfect. Let's just move forward as best we can. And so... When Jesus commissioned the church in the beginning of Acts, his desire was to use a group of imperfect people to reach the world. He had no other choice because he looked around and he saw imperfection in everyone but himself. And Jesus was going back to the Heavenly Father and used imperfect people to reach the world. And so from the very beginning, we learn that a biblical church is full of imperfect people. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Verse thirteen. We're going to look primarily and focus on this verse today. And as we look at it, I want you to know that I am a firm believer that there's nothing in the Bible by accident. There, there is everything that is written was inspired by God and is completely inerrant. It is absolute truth. It is something you can bank your life on. And everything is there on purpose. And God has a reason for everything He included. There is nothing there by accident. However, this verse today, you'll think, "What on earth?" Does that have to do with anything? There are certainly verses in the Bible that are more impactful than others. You walk away thinking, wow, I know what to do now. And others you think, okay, this is one of those verses. Check it out. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. When they arrived, they're going to the Mount of Olives. They went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. What on earth can we possibly learn from a list of names? These guys were the ones that Jesus was commissioning to go and to establish the very first church. These were people who had followed him around, his disciples. And so we're going to look at some common characteristics among people in this early church. They were the ones who... Jesus had done lots of miracles in front of and taught his parables and reached people and raised the dead and all of this stuff. And there they are all together without Jesus. He's physically gone from them. In the verses prior to this, he ascended back into heaven. And so there they are before the Holy spirit has come and given them extreme power and so on to go and establish the church. Here they are sort of caught in between what they used to have and where they're heading. And so these Folks, we know they weren't perfect at all, and we'll see many more names throughout the book of Acts. I would encourage you, if you want to read an incredible story of what God can do through people who are simply available to him, read the book of Acts all the way through and, and just look at it and see those names and study those people because there are not only these names but other names, people like Paul who has radically changed, people like Timothy and Barnabas and other folks who are in this story in this book of Acts. We realized they weren't perfect at all. In fact, one of my, I don't know if I should call it one of my favorite because it's sort of, you could read into it the wrong way. But in Acts chapter 20, I'll turn there. But pastors, I suppose, would probably like this passage of scripture. But I'll tell you how imperfect these people really were. They even had people, and we see in Acts 20, who fell asleep in church. They fell asleep in church. Now, I know that in here, none of us have that tendency. That none of us, when we get in here, kind of settle in just a little bit and think, man, I didn't get very much sleep last night. Now's my chance. Nobody thinks that. And particularly when I get to go and all of nobody, you know, it's just you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. I sense it. I feel it. Okay? And if that's not the case, then just kind of smile and, you know, and, and or nudge somebody and wake them up. Thank you in the back. But but you know, but they even had people who fell asleep in church. Now you know that in Acts chapter 20, we see the penalty for this guy falling asleep. Luke records in the book of Acts that Paul kept on speaking. You can only imagine that Luke's just trying to be nice, saying he wouldn't stop. Holy cow, he's going on forever and ever and ever. It's past lunchtime, it's running into the afternoon. Why doesn't this guy stop? Paul kept on speaking, and while he kept on speaking, there was a young man it says fell into a deep sleep. I don't know if he was snoring or not, but he was in deep sleep. And the only problem was, and here's his penalty, he was in a third story window and he fell asleep in the window and his sleep overcame him and he fell to his death. Out the window. Now, that's why I say I'm not sure if I should claim this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But what a penalty for falling asleep in church. You know what I mean? But Paul, of course, being as gracious as he was, rushes down and says, look, he, he'll live again. And, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised again. And so let's just say if you fall asleep in church, fall to your death. We'll pray for you that the Lord will raise you again so that you can then again come back to church and fall asleep once more. But But anyway, they were imperfect. And we know this as we study and we look just in a brief way at some of these characters. We know that each of these guys, each of these ladies that we see in the book of Acts, they each had a past. We know they're imperfect because we see their past. If you're following along in the back of your book, you'll see some of this stuff. You can take some notes if you like. They each had a past. They had good moments, moments of incredible faith. Peter himself walked on water. Jesus walks out on the water. And Peter says, look, if it's really you, Lord, why don't you call me out? He says, it's me. Come on. And Peter gets to walk on water. What a moment of incredible faith. Nobody in here, I don't believe, has ever done that for more than a couple steps. We go quickly down under the water. Peter, in a moment of incredible faith, did that. They got to be with Jesus at amazing times when he's doing miracles, when he's feeding the 5,000, when he's raising people from the dead, when folks are following him, whose lives are forever changed. They got to be Part of that, they had good things in their past, but they also had some bad things. Thomas, we know as Doubting Thomas, the guy who was a disciple of Jesus, followed him around for two and a half to three and a half years. And then when he was raised again, which he promised to to do, to be raised again, Thomas said, look, that's cool. That may be right, but I'm not believing it until I touch his hands and touch his side and see the ones I'm not believing it. A guy who walked with Jesus every day had a moment of doubt, a moment of disbelief. Peter himself, we could tell stories all day long. Maybe you've read them about Peter. who, When Jesus said, I'll be crucified, Peter says, no, wait just a second. Hold on. That's not going to happen. You know what Jesus called him in that moment? He called him Satan. You ever been called Satan by Jesus Christ? That's a pretty low moment in your life if you're the disciple who gets called Satan. You know, wait a minute, he's trying to tell Jesus what to do. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you don't have the things of God in mind. Peter was also a guy we know denied Jesus, who was one of his most loyal disciples, but in a moment where it was face-to-face, what are you going to do? Point blank, three times, he said, I don't know him. And violently, the third time, cursing, says, I don't know who he is. A low moment. Matthew, another person listed here in this list in Acts one thirteen, was a tax collector. These guys weren't liked. They weren't tax collectors like the IRS who had to follow some sort of rules. They were tax collectors that had no rules. They wanted extra money. They just add a little bit on to what you owe them. They weren't liked. I'm sure at moments, Matthew thought, why did I do that? Why was I so selfish? Why did I steal from people? James and John, also listed here, were so arrogant that they asked Jesus, when you get to heaven, can we sit one at your right hand and one at your left Can we be in positions of power? And you had to know that at some moment when Jesus died on the cross and was raised again, they finally realized what it's all about. They had to think, why were we so arrogant? Why were we so stupid to think that that's what it was all about? Paul, who later is in the book of Acts, known as Saul before his conversion, persecuted people, had them thrown in prison for following Jesus. He later would claim he was the worst of all sinners. He looks back at his past and he sees some pretty low moments. Timothy, a guy that Paul took under his wing, had some family issues. I know nobody in here has family issues, but imagine if you did. Imagine if something in your family wasn't quite right. Timothy could probably relate. He had a mother who was Jewish, a father who was Greek. He had different value systems going on in his family. Being pulled in different directions, what's he going to believe? Who's he going to follow? Who's he going to listen to? He had some family issues. They all had disappointments. They all had regrets. They all had a past. Some of their past we know is public because we get to read about it. Imagine that. 2,000 years later, people are still reading about you messing up. That's pretty tough. You're long gone, and we get to sit here and talk about it today and just berate them in some ways for how they messed up. They had a public past, and they're constantly reminded of it. Paul himself, after his conversion, had to go before the disciples. They didn't believe him. They said, no, you're the guy who persecutes the church. We know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get on the inside and put all of us in prison. He's reminded of his past over and over. They each had a past. And so we realized early that none of the members of this early church could claim perfection. They were all sinners. But despite their histories, they each had a choice to make. Sure, they had a past. They had things good or bad. They had a choice to make, first of all, about their past. Would their failures, would their sin keep them from doing anything good in the future? Some were in need of forgiveness. Some probably still did things they wish they hadn't done. Some probably needed to forgive. There may have been tension between the group. They had a choice to make about their past. They could be paralyzed by what had happened. They could think that they had simply messed up too much. If there's no way that Jesus could use me in any sort of ministry whatsoever, some probably didn't even want to move forward because they looked at the good old days and thought it can't get any better than that. We were with Jesus. How can it get any better? Let's just hang our hat on that and retire. That's enough. I'll retire as a disciple, and that's it. I don't want to move forward. I've done enough. They had a choice to make. Would they allow their past to defeat them? Would they allow their past to keep them right where they have been, or would they move forward? They also had a choice to make about Jesus. Would they follow him by faith now that he was gone from them physically? Would they Would they follow him? Instead of just when he was present, or would they say, well, that was a phase for me. You know, that was great, but I was really kind of searching for meaning during that time. And that was just a phase. You ever heard somebody talk about their religious life as a phase? Well, that was a phase for me back when I was in high school. Or maybe I was in college. I was searching for some meaning. Or, you know, at a point in my life, I got really down. And I needed something, and that was kind of a phase for me. Maybe they could choose that Jesus was just a phase. Or would they do what he had commissioned them to do? At the end of Matthew chapter 28, he says, go and make disciples, and baptize people, and teach them. And then in Acts chapter 180, he says, you're going to be my witnesses, both where you're comfortable here in Jerusalem, then spreading out to Judea, then to Samaria with people you don't even like, and then to the ends of the earth where you've never been before. Would they do what he had commissioned them to do? And others would face this same choice throughout the book of Acts. What would they do about Jesus? In Acts chapter 16, there's a jailer who, at the end of, of the night, there was an earthquake, and... And Paul was released from prison, and and the jailer is ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, no, wait just a second. Look, Jesus is the one who's responsible for all this, and the jailer has to be face-to-face with, what am I going to do? And he says, what must I do to be saved? And that night, he made a choice, and all of his family did. They were saved that night and baptized, and lives forever changed. They had a choice to make, each of these people, throughout the book of Acts, about Jesus. Not only that, but they had a choice to make about the future want you to write down a scripture reference, Philippians chapter 3. And I'll turn there and read it to you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul is writing this, and he is talking about his previous life as a person who was uh, persecuting the church, who was a Pharisee and so on. And he lists all the things that he had been so great about he had recognition for and so on. And he says, look, all that stuff is gone. I'm not counting on any of that. I'm not going to, to take credit for any of that stuff. I, I'm going to leave all that behind. And he says, now my goal is to, to, to achieve absolute spiritual maturity as best I can. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says this, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already fully mature. He knew who he was. He knew he was on a journey. But I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself to taking hold of it, that, that spiritual maturity. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly calling, Christ Jesus. Paul was a guy who had both good things and bad things in his past. And he said, my decision about the future is to leave that stuff behind, good or bad, and to press forward to what God has called me to, to the life of spiritual maturity that Jesus wants me to have. Paul made a decision about the future. He looked forward to what Jesus would do in and through him. He wasn't held back by a past failure or success. The choice that each of these people in the book of Acts would make about their future was huge because they each had a future. They each had a future with Jesus in particular. They had a future with him. He had called them, forgiven them, set them back up when they had failed, and he wasn't finished with them. He wanted to live in them and through them and make them the people that he wanted them to be. So they had a future with Jesus. And they also had a future with each other. These guys would partner together through the rest of the book of Acts and and further on into the New Testament. They would partner together in an incredible movement. Peter and John partnered together. Paul with Silas, Barnabas, and Timothy. The ministry that they did required that they embrace one another, imperfections and all, and that they move forward. So they, they had a future with each other, which would lead to their future with those that God would bring their way. Their future was full of ministry. For each and every one of these guys, though some were more famous than others, some are are more recorded, we we know more about them than others. They each had a future that was full of ministry. They would encounter imperfect people who were in need of Jesus. We see this over and over in the book of Acts. And so clearly, the members of the early church were imperfect. Before we stop there and before you close your notes and your Bible and turn off your mind and all of that and sink into a deeper sleep, Understand that when we read about this early church that from the very beginning was full of imperfect people that Jesus used to reach the world, we're face-to-face with the fact that they, yes, were imperfect, but so are we. Because the truth is, each of us has a past. We each have a past filled with some good things, moments of faith, that we just remember and think, why can't I operate like that all the time? We have moments of seeing God do amazing things in our lives, of partnering with him in ministries that, that we just think, wow, that was incredible. Or times where we just think, i right. For once in my life, isn't this great? We have moments in our past that are good. We also, though, have moments that aren't so good. And you say, boy, you have no idea. That, for some of us, that's probably true. You just think, golly, if, if I were to, to list it, I could be here all day telling you stories of moments in my past that weren't exactly the way they should be. Moments of sin where you just fell and you just think, why did I do that? Moments of regret and you look back and you just wish things had been different. Some of us still deal with that today. We have also, looking in our history, we see weakness. And we maybe have secrets or we see moments of doubt and we see times where we just ran from God as far as we could get. We see family issues in our past that have held us back, that we still talk about today, that cause issue and so on. And we see maybe selfishness and disappointment. We look back and we see some things that we just wish weren't a part of our past. And for some of us, it's very public. Maybe everyone knows about your past. Maybe you're reminded of it constantly. Maybe it's still a part of your life. Maybe you say it's not in the past, it's the present. And I came today, and I'm just dealing with some stuff that I just wish wasn't there. And maybe you're here today, and you're frustrated, you're defeated, you're confused. And so like those early church members, we're imperfect. We have a past, and each of us, though, have a choice to make. We have a choice to make about our past. You know, you can't change it, unfortunately. There are things in my life when I wish I could rewind the clock 10, 15 years and just say, well, I'd do that different." I really wish that hadn't happened. Why? Well, I would have made a different choice than that, but unfortunately, we can't do that. That only happens in the movies. We can't do that. We can't change our past, but the truth is, according to God's word, we don't have to be defined by it. We don't have to have that be what our future is. We have a choice to make about the past. Some of us today may simply need to forgive. And you say, but you don't know what happened. No, I don't. I really, for some of you, I'm sure we could tell stories all day long. And for many of us in here, we we would say, you know what, that is incredible. You get a pass. You sit over in this group because you're the group that doesn't have to forgive because that is horrendous. And I'm not trying to make light of that. There are situations and stories just like that. Things that have happened to you long ago that you just think, there's no way that I should be required to forgive. For others, we just think, come on, you know, get over that. Let's go, move on. I heard this said once, if you struggle with forgiveness, and if you just say, I don't have to forgive. I heard somebody challenge me with this. Add all that stuff up in your life. Get it all together. Write it all down, whatever it is. Then go read the Gospels and read about the forgiveness of Jesus and how all that stuff adds up to what he didn't have to forgive either. Boy, that's easier said than done. The forgiveness doesn't mean that you make something say, well, that's okay. It's okay that you did that. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is simply a conscious, intentional decision to release somebody from what they owe you. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that you're saying, well, that's right. That's fine what they did. No, it's not fine. It'll never be right. But until we release them from what they owe us, we are the ones who are bound up. It's we who experience the pain. And so maybe today for those things in your past, some of us just need to forgive. And at the end of the service, maybe here in a moment, you'd say, you know what? I'm getting out of my seat. I'm going to come and I'm going to pray and just say, God, I choose today to forgive. To release them, that person, that group, that family, whoever it may be, I release them from what they owe me. And when I'm reminded of those things, my response is going to be they don't owe me anymore. And I may have to do that for the rest of my life. But if that's what it takes for me to operate in forgiveness, I'll do it. Some of us need to be forgiven. Some of us need to be forgiven by God. He offers it free. Some of us need to simply admit, God, I've messed up. Or go to a person in here and say, you know what, look, I know and you know that I've done something and here's what it is, and I'm sorry. And some of us need to say, you know what, that's how I'm going to make a decision about my past. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to be forgiven. Or some of us need to simply build on what's happened in the past instead of living in it. Instead of hanging our hat and saying, well, that was good enough. That will last me the rest of my life. Let's build on those things, those past successes. I'm convinced that a biblical church is full of people who will admit when they're wrong, admit when they've fallen. And the culture there allows them to take off their mask and to say, you know what, I'm imperfect. I need forgiveness. I need to forgive. And then to work through problems, to get help, to get prayer, to receive encouragement. I think that's the culture of a biblical church. We also have a choice to make about Jesus. Jesus. Will we receive his forgiveness? Will we operate by faith that we can't see him? Will, will we come to him just like we are instead of saying, well, give me some time. Let me kind of get things together in my life, and then I'll come to Jesus. You realize when you do that, you're heading the opposite direction. You go in the opposite direction because he says, look, you can't earn it. You can't get there. Just come as you are. He'll take care of the rest. Some of us have a choice to make about him. Some of us have to realize today there's only room for one person on the throne of our lives. And it's either going to be me or you or it's going to be Jesus. Some of us need to make a choice about him. We all have a choice to make also about the future. What will it be? More of the same? You satisfied with where things are? Pleased with how things have turned out? Maybe so. Will it be more of the same? Good, bad, or otherwise? What will your future be? Make a choice today, maybe, that your future will be one of following Jesus as best you can, living in obedience to him, daily striving just to be more like him. We'll make a choice about that future because we each have a future with Jesus. He's not done yet. Some of you think he's just put me on the shelf. I've gone too far. He's not done. Hear the truth today. He is not done with you yet. He still wants you. He still loves you. He'll never be finished with you, ever. Some of you don't believe that today. Some of us struggle with that, but he's not done. We also have a future with each other. As we partner together, we're going to see incredible things get done. And unless we are willing for some of us maybe to drop our pride or our mask and put those things off, admit our imperfections, when we do those things, then we'll see God do some amazing things. So as imperfect but loving people, we'll partner together to see what God wants to do here. We have a future with each other, and then we also have a future with those that God will bring our way. What will they find here? In us as individuals, as us collectively, what will they find? They're going to be imperfect. They're going to be in need of Jesus. The question is, will they find in us a willingness, a readiness to extend to them the love and the forgiveness of Jesus? What we've received, will we extend that to them? And those who are far from God, they won't be one. By perfect people who pretend that everything's okay. They'll be won by imperfect but loving people who simply extend what we receive from Jesus. And so as we close, we might think, well, now what? We, we see that the early church full of imperfect people. I and mean, we could do a study on each one of these guys. We could look at every single character in the book of Acts and, and just pick their lives apart and realize they were imperfect but God did something. They messed up but God put them back together. They sinned but God forgave. Okay, big deal. We've each got those kinds of things. I, I think individually and collectively, our culture here has to be where one one where people can forgive and be forgiven. Where where people can have have someone come alongside them and and, and they can take then their imperfections to Jesus and have their lives changed where we, where we join with hurting people. Where our past failures and disappointments can be dealt with, honestly. Where it's not something that we're afraid to admit. Well, I have some issues in my life that I'm struggling with. Who can I talk to? We ought to have, and I believe we do we ought to have more each day, more people who say, you know what, if you've got some issues, so do I. Let's move together toward Jesus. Let's do all we can. When we have a culture like that, then I believe God will entrust us with legitimate growth. God will entrust us with people who really, really need Jesus. And so let's not put on a show, pretend to be perfect in any way. That's a trap, and it's hard not to do. Because when you come to church, you think you got to act like you got it all together. And that argument that you had on the way here, yelling and all that stuff, you just stop and put on your smiling face, and here you are. I know the trap. I'm the pastor, for crying out loud. I know the trap. We have issues in our house. Again, no earthquake right there, okay? For some of you, you're thinking, wait a minute, don't tell me that. You're supposed to be perfect. No. I am, I am with you on the journey. We are fellow travelers. God just so happens to say Get up and preach every Sunday. Okay, I'll do that. But well, we're fellow travelers, so we all have issues. So let's not put on a show or pretend. But let's just do the best we can to press forward in life and in the ministry that God has called us to and see what he does and be okay with the fact that a biblical church is full of imperfect people. I'm going to close today and want you to listen to the words of a song. You'll see the words on the screen as the song is played, and I want you during the song, to consider the choice that you need to make today about your past. Maybe today is the day you choose to forgive. Maybe today is the day you choose to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you make a choice about your past. Maybe you make a choice about Jesus. Maybe you're ready to humble yourself and say, I'm ready to come to him and him alone for salvation. I'm going to place my trust in him. Or maybe today you make a choice to come back to him. Maybe you've been running Or maybe today you'd make a choice to say, my future with Jesus is going to be one that I'll do my best to be obedient. I'm going to follow him as best I can. Maybe that choice would include some simple step like baptism. To say, I know I've been saved before, but I've never been obedient. And something like that. The Bible says that's what we ought to do after we're saved. Maybe you just say, you know what, I I want to know more about that. Or, Or I'm going to be as obedient as I can tomorrow when I get up and I go to work or go to school or whatever it is, I'm going to do my best to be in tune with Jesus and live for him. Maybe you need to make a choice about Jesus or maybe you need to make a choice about your future. What's it going to be? Is it going to be more of the same discouragement, defeat, confusion? Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to bank my future on Jesus and do the best I can to hear from him, to receive his truth and his forgiveness. And after the song is over, we'll stand and we'll sing a closing song together. And it's during that time that the invitation will be open for those who need Jesus. For those who may need prayer. For those who may say, I just need to pour my heart out to the Lord. And you'd be so bold as to say, you know what? It's going to take a public statement for me to do that. I'm going to walk down front. I'm going to take the pastor's hand ask him to pray for me. I'm going to spend some time on my knees before God. And I don't care what anybody else thinks because they're just as imperfect as I am. Or maybe today you you, you need to come and just pray that God would use this imperfect church, these imperfect people, to make an everlasting difference in our community. Maybe that's your heart's cry. So after the song, we'll stand and we'll sing one together, and that'll be the time that the invitation's open. Listen to the words of this this song and think about the choice you may need to make.